Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Harold Holzer, the author of The Presidents Versus the Press, the endless battle between the White House and the media, from the founding fathers to fake news. He is the author of dozens of books and is one of America's leading authorities on Abraham Lincoln and also a winner of the Gilder Lerman Lincoln Prize. He is the director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College. Thanks so much for being here, Mr. Holzer. Thank you. Great to be with you. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. There is perhaps no relationship more fraught in America than that of the one between the president and the reporters who cover him. Him just so far, though. We'll see, of course, one day. But uh, right. I don't just mean the current occupant of the Oval Office. I mean all of them. One through 45 presidents since Washington have been disappointed in the coverage they get today. We're going to go, we're going to work to understand why. And to do that, we have to go back to George Washington, even the most loved president in American history, at least if you look at the Electoral College vote, once picked up a newspaper, threw it down, and Harold says, launched into a tirade on the personal abuse which had been bestowed on him by opposition journalists. So how long did George Washington's honeymoon with the media last, if there ever was one? Well, yeah, he's the, he had the longest, he had the, everything he did was the first, but he also <laughs> had the longest press honeymoon of any president. It basically lasted almost four years, <clears throat> but at the tail end of his first term, his own Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, who was not a Federalist as Washington was, decided that it was unhealthy for the Republic to have only one set of opinions. And uh, there was only a pro-federalist newspaper in uh, the national capital of Philadelphia. <clears throat> so Washington, uh, Jefferson paid um, to have a pro-Republican Democratic editor move to Philadelphia from New York, gave him a job in the State Department, think of that, um, to help cement his expenses. And uh, this fellow started a newspaper that began immediately attacking George Washington. And then uh, a man named uh, Benjamin Franklin Bache started another anti-Washington newspaper in Philadelphia. That pained Washington even more, not only because the, the level of the attacks went up a few decibels, but because he was the grandson of fellow founding father, um, Benjamin Franklin. They called him Little Lightning, actually. <laughs> um, and it was brutal, brutal. And Washington, you know, was not used to criticism, as you pointed out, Evan. He, he, um, you know, he was basking in the glory of being a beloved figure. He had never been subjected to being questioned about personality or, or politics, and he hated it, absolutely hated it. And so was there a particular story that set them on the path towards hatred of, of each other, or um, did they look for anything they possibly could because this was the goal of the newspaper all along? Well, I would say both. How about that for a succinct and probably meaningless answer? So <laughs> yes, they were looking for things and they began with personality-driven criticism. Um, he celebrated his own birthday and forced us, forces us to do it 
Uh, he rides about in fancy carriages. He, is a, he acts in a monarchical way. Um, he left town during a congressional session. Apparently that was against the law. Um, of course, he was trying to put down the Whiskey Rebellion personally as a commander in the field, so he had good reason. He, um, he battled with Thomas Paine uh, publicly and Paine attacked him. But then there were real issues. I mean, the tilt of American foreign policy toward either Britain or France was a big issue in the United States for the first uh, 20 years of its existence. And Washington preferred normalizing relationships with Great Britain as kind of the mother country. Jeffersonians believed that it was the enemy country and that the revolution in France more exemplified the American revolution and should be supported and respected. And that was the big battle line, the big fault line. So let's even go back to before uh, George Washington, because you do mention some of this in the book, and I think it's important and also interesting. Let's talk a little bit about colonial America. Um, take us to Pennsylvania in 1682. So we're talking, you know, just about 100 years here um, before uh, uh, the, the Declaration of Independence is, is done. And um, there is actually a rule on the books you wrote about that said, all scandalous and malicious reporters of false news whether against magistrates or private people, shall be accordingly punished as enemies. Isn't that cool? I mean, yes. I looked, I was looking for the earliest possible mention of fake news or enemies of the state. And I found it 100 years before the Republic was, uh, was created. So yeah, um, newspapers were not supposed to um, uh, ridicule people in power. And obviously Peter Zenger and the revolutions uh, you know, against capricious libel accusations transformed um, the limits of American journalism. But what also transformed it was the politicization of the culture. Um, one of the things Washington successfully urged in his first few years of office, I know we're skipping a century again, was <laughs> avoiding uh, political parties, avoiding the entanglements and the bitterness, but it was inevitable that, and healthy in a way for democracy. Jefferson did encourage it and Hamilton encouraged it. Hamilton purchased a newspaper of his own, the New York Post, which is still in existence, um, even if he wouldn't recognize it. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Madison and Jefferson and others contributed to newspapers, certainly Madison more. So they were deeply involved in newspapers going from those who covered quaint, neighborhood happenings or reprinted foreign news when it arrived on ships, you know, 30 days after the news occurred into something that was more vibrant and more immediate and ultimately inevitably more political. Was there an understanding, and I do want to ask you about how um, there really was not a golden age of journalism where all was fair and balanced, so to speak. I mean, a lot of the early newspapers were very much connected to political organizations, but um, was there... Uh, what was the feeling among the founding fathers as they're crafting the Constitution and they're setting out to start this country? What was the idea of the relationship between the press and the government that, that would exist in this new country among the people setting out the frame of it? I think the strongest clue we have comes in the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights, which specifically said, and this was quickly ignored and violated, by John Adams, it said that the Congress had the Congress could not make any law 
that restricted free speech or free press. So that's the only constitutional mention. And it seems to me it, that it guarantees the absolute ability of journalists and editors to say exactly what they want and be protected from legal action. The, 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 the changes were in the Adams interpretation and also in the idea of state libel laws having a different standard, that libel was different than free speech. Free speech was something you could utter or print, but libel laws were something that you were going to be held to account for later or to held to account by later. <laughs> so there was always the threat of being pushed back or um, taken to task, but your right to make you know, a fool of yourself or say something libelous was absolute. You say that today's critics of President Trump complain that he obsesses over his coverage but then you also say, so did Washington and Jefferson and Jackson and TR, and you put right. Lyndon Johnson in that list. But let's talk about Jefferson. He said, uh, Jefferson said, our liberty depends on the freedom of the press, and that cannot be limited without being lost. But you also say his theoretical cheerleading eventually gives way to fury. So let's just take one example, the Louisiana Purchase. He doubles the size of the United States, of the country, but also doubles the hate that he gets because of this. Explain what the press says about the Louisiana Purchase and then how Jefferson reacts. Right. It depends on who's writing. The, 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 I'm <laughs> going to say uh, Democratic, so I don't have to keep saying Democratic Republican. So the Democratic press um, laud, generally lauds this as a great boon for the country, um, even though they ignore the fact that it's um, a kind of uh, cynical of Jefferson, who doesn't believe in great national authority, to have done, you know, the great national land acquisition in American history. The Federalist Press, which is still thriving in the post-Washington Adams era, complains that Jefferson is simply creating new territory to produce new Democratic congressmen and senators that will eventually overwhelm the Federalist majorities, or at least, you know, the decent representation that they still have in the Jefferson and Madison eras. So yeah, it's entirely political. Same kind of thing that, um, that Lincoln fought back against when he tried to prevent uh, slave states from taking root in the new American West. Because every time you allow slavery to exist in a new territory, you also allow voters to vote for pro-slavery Democratic senators. So it's really, the, now that senators are politicized and belong to political parties, the Louisiana Purchase triggers outrage and fear that Jefferson's party is going to create a permanent stranglehold on the legislative branch. But as you know, they had 24 years of uninterrupted presidency uh, before John Adams' son came back. What is the stream of news and of media coming into the White House at that point? Are newspapers delivered all day long? Is there just a morning edition? And, and how much time does Thomas Jefferson and I guess those of his cohorts in that era, how much are they reading and what are they reading? And um, who's delivering all these newspapers? <laughs> well, most of the, there are no newsboys in those days. Yeah. There were subscriptions. I'm sure that the White House once it was established in the Adams era, or even the, the mansions that Washington lived in in New York and Philadelphia 
had delivery people who were getting newspapers from the from the newspaper offices themselves, for that matter, and bringing them to the president's attention. And they all became inveterate newspaper readers. That's how they got opinion of the rest of the nation and and their own and their own capital cities. However, it you know it wasn't. Uh, and by the way, I wish I had this figure when I um, when I wrote the book. Apparently, uh, the the White House at one point in the 19th, in the 20th century, spent $85,000 a year on newspaper subscriptions. Um, but remember, in the Washington era, they weren't dailies. They came out a couple of three times a week. They became, firstly, they were weeklies. Then they came out twice a week, then three times a week. By the end of you know, the Adams era, most of them were dailies. But it took a while for that transformation to take place. These papers were printed you know, on hand presses, they were not, and, you know, at the maximum, the newspaper that Washington was furious about reached, you know, they printed maybe 2,000 copies. Uh, just think of how small the uh, the readership was locally and nationally. And then by the time they reached people outside of the capital or outside of the original colonies, the news they were reporting about was already out of date. So it was a different kind of rush to news than we have on Twitter and, and Facebook. <laughs> uh, well, let's, let's Although throw it. I just, Evan, let me just put one, say one thing, because I'm often asked this, isn't it terrible worse today? People who got newspapers twice a week thought that it was breathtakingly innovative to have news that often. So it may seem quaint to us to think of people in, in white powdered wigs reading enormous broadsheet newspapers, but that had the immediacy of a, of a Twitter post. In, in the 1790s. This is, I didn't have this one written down, but it just occurred to me. Who would have been the best early president at Twitter? Jefferson. Quick you know thinking. Why? Because I am just, I never thought of it either, but because Jefferson really could turn a phrase. And how about what he said when he was an elder statesman? They had, somebody said, um, do you read the newspaper? What newspapers do you read? And he said, he only reads one paper I think it was the Richmond Enquirer, and then only for the advertisements because they're the only truth to be found in a newspaper. You can That's, see him fashioning a Trump-like tweet out of that kind of sentiment and wise, you know, wiseacre kind of comment. That's good. Uh, no one knows more about how Abraham Lincoln cultivated the press than Harold Holzer. Uh, his book, Lincoln and the Power of the Press, is a stunning look at how the 16th president um, mastered the art of forming and shaping public opinion and also the news coverage. Um, you say that President Trump's political opponents complain that he circumvents the press to deploy his messages directly to the people through technologically advanced media, but so did Abraham Lincoln. So uh, what was the technology, the technologically advanced media that Abraham Lincoln uses during the Civil War and how? It's a combination of um of old and new, and I, you have caught on to a, the second thread in, in my book the, uh, thematically. One is that, you know, what's old is new again, and that every president has quarreled with press coverage and, and thought it didn't do him justice. But the second thread is there, the, there is this little extra that tech-savvy presidents have added to the mix, creating the ability to, to go around the press and at least provide alternative messaging. I know we'll get to them, but the obvious ones 
after Lincoln or FDR with radio, JFK with TV, uh, Barack Obama with the beginnings of the internet, and then uh, President Trump with on Twitter. Um, but going back to Lincoln, he was a letter writer. I mean, he spent most of his days writing letters, marks, instructions, notes, and a couple of several of the letters over the course of his four years as president, maybe eight of them, he thought should be shared more widely than with the recipients. So what he did is he had the letters sent to newspapers, um, mostly newspapers who had relationships with other newspapers around the country, um, you know, in the informal group then known as the Associated Press. And they were published, um, even though they were private letters. His letter to Horace Greeley saying what he did about slavery would depend on whether it would help save the Union. That was released to a newspaper before it got to Greeley. In fact, a rival newspaper. Um, his famous speech to his old neighbors in Springfield, in which he said, you do not want to fight to free Negroes. Well, some of them seem willing to fight to free you. Um, uh, a great, great letter, which he was supposed to give as a speech, but decided he couldn't travel. That went to the papers first. In fact, they mangled it and it got him really ticked off. So he used the telegraph and the, and the um, fact that newspapers in those days would put out, especially um, papers, major papers like the New York Herald and the New York Tribune would put out several editions a day. And then at the end of the Civil War, um, Abraham Lincoln spent really the better part of his last month of life traveling with the Union Army in Virginia, visiting the troops, observing um, the, the, the tactics that went behind the siege of Petersburg and the capture of Richmond. And he began sending reports to the Secretary of War via the telegraph. And the Secretary of War had these reports published in the press. So at the end of the war, Lincoln was the major war correspondent in the United States. He was not only the commander in chief, but he was the communicator in chief using the telegraph to, I guess, not only report, but take some credit for the military victory that was about to take place. Uh, your book is titled very appropriately when it comes to Abraham Lincoln, uh, The Presidents Versus the Press. And you say that by 1864, President Lincoln had become the harshest, most repressive presidential censor yet. That word versus is part of your book title. Um, yeah. th that's uh, because he was battling, you say, Democratic newspapers, well, European newspapers, Southern yeah. newspapers. And he goes well beyond the anger of Washington and Jefferson and actually starts having editors arrested. Uh, More, well, Adams did too. Adams um, signed the sedition law and prosecuted journalists merely for ridiculing the president in the non-war situation. Lincoln um, argued that he could suspend the writ of habeas corpus in times of rebellion, which is also specified in the constitution. And he cracked down on dissent for sure. Um, unlike us, he didn't know how the war was going to turn out. Um, and he believed it was worth violating the Constitution to save it permanently. I mean, we can argue about this, but the fact is his administration or him or his army closed between, I would say, between 250 and 300 Democratic newspapers for offenses that seem as innocuous as um, uh, urging young men not to re-enlist in the army after the Battle of Bull Run. 
that caused crackdowns in the New York press. So yeah, absolutely the harshest crackdowns in, in American history under Lincoln. Did he acknowledge that he was taking these extraordinary steps and that yeah. some might see them um, in the future as being uh, anti-free speech? You know, again, it, 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 he's trying to win the Civil War, ultimately trying to end slavery in America. In, in one of those public letters that was published not only in the press, but as a pamphlet, he, he you know, used several kind of homespun allusions to explain his policy. One was that, and this was in an era when amputations were becoming all too common, um, you would always uh, uh, take off a leg to save a body, but you would never kill the whole body to save a leg, meaning the First Amendment. He also said, must I shoot a simple-minded soldier boy who deserts and spare the head of a wily agitator who induces him to desert? And the answer is he, the wily agitator, whether it was in speech or in print, he was not going to spare. And he said that among the press, he believed were spies and agitators. And he was, he felt no guilt about it. And he did explain it in this public letter called, we know it as the Corning letter because it was written to uh, Erastus Corning, a democratic politician in my state, New York. The next president you focus on is Teddy Roosevelt. So, um, First of all, how did the media change in the 35 years since Lincoln's death? I remember in your Lincoln and the Power of the Press book, you talk about how newspapers are essentially an arm at that point of political right. organizations and political parties. Had that changed by the time Teddy Roosevelt takes office? So, yes, for 100 years, the press was proudly uh, connected to political organizations. They were pro-democratic, they were pro-republican. They colored the news according to their political beliefs. That was outrageous. But they said they admitted it. So, you know, it was more fun. You got to own it. It was more it. obvious than Fox it. and MSNBC. Good. So um, in the 1890s, a man named Adolf Ox, um, who was an immigrant, who a German immigrant who owned the Chattanooga Times, bought the New York Times, which had been founded as a Republican newspaper. And he decided on this new policy of straightforward news. And then people like Pulitzer and Hearst at the end of the 19th century believed that sensationalism sold more papers than politics. And so TR comes to power right after the uh, Spanish-American War. And he's the perfect president for this new era, which is more of a front page era than a political press era. It's more about reporters than it is about those famous editors of the 19th century, like Horace Greeley and, uh, and James Gordon Bennett uh, and uh, uh, Henry Raymond of the Times. It was now all about these guys who could get big stories. And T.R., who was famously described as desiring to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral, <laughs> is the per he, wants, he thinks he should be on the front page of every paper every day. And by the way, when he wasn't, he would undercut other people's stories to make himself the headline in the next edition. He just worked it really hard. And he worked both long form, serious investigative journalists like the muckrakers, whom he denounced as muckrakers and when he was sort of finished with them, and also the daily White House press corps. A, he invited them into the White House. I feel like Joe Biden. Number one, he invited them into the White House. Number two, he invited them into his office every day. Uh, while he was being shaved for his afternoon shave. 
something you and I could do more with more of. Our people can't see us. But <laughs> right. I don't have a COVID beard. You might have a COVID beard. No, this, this, this is a couple of days here. This is just a couple oh, of okay. days. Okay, I've yeah. had this for 50 years. So. Yeah. Um, I, um, so he invited them in while he was being shaved every day. And reporters got to ask him questions. It was the first news conferences, even though they weren't formal. Well, you, you describe a wonderful scene where the barber is basically physically holding him down in the chair right. because well, TR press, is such a force of nature. The press, you know, got, got wise to this and they purposely would ask him the most provocative questions when the barber had the straight edge razor in his neck because they wanted to see if they could draw blood by asking him. And, and TR would, would jump up and throw, rip the towel off in anger and the barber would retract, oh God, I'm sorry would retract the, uh, the, uh, the, the blade, the blade just in the nick of time. W one of the wonderful things that I love about Teddy Roosevelt and also Franklin Roosevelt is who we'll get to is they were so good at the hand to hand combat of politics. They were real, you know, you could, you know, you feel like you could run up to them as a reporter anywhere, you know, in America, you know, without a moment's notice and they'd be able to play hardball with you and ask a question or an answer a question. Um, why does TR realize that these briefings can be a powerful tool? What is in his political makeup that makes him understand that this can be a way that I can bend public opinion? Well, he is keen to the changing media. He is aware that uh, by lassoing the press and having them in the White House subject to his announcements, his press releases, his whims, his barber's hours, his hikes, his tennis matches. Actually, he didn't like them to know he played tennis because he thought it was a sissy sport and he didn't want to be seen doing that. Hiking, boxing, that was more his thing. So the tennis courts, which I think he built, were off limits. Um, so he got it. And, you know, he saw the immediate results. He was the star of, of the nation's caricaturists. Um, he organized the, the, or allowed the organization of the first White House Photographers Association and understood. You know, in Lincoln's era, photographs were not published in newspapers, but in Roosevelt's era, they were. And he famously held up, and this is a great time to be talking about it, as we're, as we're speaking today, he held up a Thanksgiving ceremony uh, because the AP photographer was detained. So he just said, well, let's do it when he gets here. There's no point in having this event without the AP photographer. Uh, no one will know what happened. Also, he, even though more was, you know, less was never more for Roosevelt, he did not like journalists uh, writing about his family. And that was a tradition for a, about 30 years that the presidents, even the attention seekers like TR, thought that their children were off limits and their wives. When it comes to presidents who tried to circumvent the press, uh, FDR, uh, the, the, the cousin here, uh, is perhaps king of the castle. Uh, even though FDR realizes that he can use radio to go right into um, people's rooms, this becomes a technique that he uses um, throughout just about his entire administration. So how does he realize that? Well, he the incredible power of the fireside chats um, can't be overestimated. There are only 28 of them. 29 if you, if you count the one that he did the day after the election in 1932. Believe it or not, 
it was a president who didn't concede, um, even though FDR won 41 states out of 48. Uh, Hoover did not concede. So Roosevelt went to his parlor uh, and from a chair in front of his fireplace, he spoke on radio. And then he did a second take for newsreels. So he was also a newsreel president, which is a little bit underestimated in comparison to the power or the fame of the fireside chats. But as you, as you pointed out, he was also astonishingly open and devoted a lot of his time to the press. He had 998 press conferences during his 12 years as president. That's two a week. And he, you know, he would sometimes skip them when he was at a summit uh, at Yalta, but he did some at Yalta. He did them at Casablanca. He, uh, and extraordinary access for the press. And he loved jousting with them. If you look at the, um, the transcripts, he could be rude, like, you know, Trump arguably is when he says, that's a nasty question, or I'm not calling on you, that's fake. You know, he would tell journalists, go stand in the corner, go put on a dunce cap. I'll tell you one thing he did that's positively Trumpian, and I say that not about politics, but about being thin-skinned. The New York Daily News was a great supporter of FDRs. In fact, they raised the money to build the White House pool. For him, it was not a government expense, so he could rehabilitate in it. But uh, when Roosevelt made it clear that he was, you know, with the peacetime draft, he was getting ready to enter the war somehow, the newspaper turned against him. And one day Roosevelt came into one of his press conferences and handed the Daily News reporter a, a fake German cross, you know, the highest military honor in Germany. And the journalists, all of the journalists thought that, that he had gone really too far, right? accusing the guy of being like a, a Nazi at that point. <laughs> so he could be really tough and, and, and angry at some points. But don't forget the press is at the same time refusing to write about his disability. By gentleman's agreement for the first eight years of his presidency, there are no photographs of Roosevelt in his wheelchair or being lifted out of cars or trains or put into them. Um, sometimes he would say, no pictures, boys, but, but they would listen. And when somebody tried to take a picture of him in the White House, I found a story where uh, a, a publisher said, you get me a picture of that man in, the, in his wheelchair. And he aims his camera and one of the other photographers gives him a poke so the film is ruined. So it was a mutual admiration society in a way. And you said, uh, I have the stat written down here. You said of 35,000 pictures of FDR, one researcher found two of him in a wheelchair. And um, what is amazing to read is that reporters agreed that it wouldn't be fair to show him in a wheelchair because it could hurt him politically. Right. That's and, an astonishing... And yeah, can you imagine it today? Let's not show Trump from the rear playing golf. I mean, that's the that it's not a disability; it's a handicap, but not a disability. <laughs> um, actually, I was very impressed with the the footage of Trump's golf swing. Um, I must say, for a guy his age, he has a pretty amazing golf swing. I will give him that. And he lets the press photograph it. There must be a gap in the trees at his Virginia golf course. Mm -hmm. so, so. Um, what one of the things about FDR, and I, and I learned this in college, and and you know from the dozen books I've read about him, uh, it's it's very clear to me that he was really good at juggling the presidential jobs, um, 
to go from foreign policy to domestic policy. And then let me give a big important speech and let me handle my party and let me handle the, judici the, the judiciary. He was really, really good at juggling the presidential hats. When he was giving these press conferences, was he really good at going from one topic to the next, oh, being able with an encyclopedic understanding of the, the nuances? He was astonishingly well-informed, but he also had a way of deflecting. If someone asked him a tough banking question, he would, you know, and I, I agree with you on his ability to juggle. I will say the first, you know, nine years of his, eight years of his administration are mostly devoted to domestic policy. Mm -hmm. And then as the fascist threat grows, he, he pivots. And then, of course, the war years is mostly devoted to, to military news and, and military boosterism. So, and, and I would also say, although, uh, you know, I'm a great Roosevelt admirer, it didn't do so well on the judiciary. He screwed that one up royally uh, in his anger over uh, court decisions that were stripping away some of the innovations of the New Deal. But in terms of being briefed, I read these transcripts with amazement. Um, but he's also, you know, he's amazing. He teases the reporters when he doesn't want to answer a question, where'd you get that suit? How much was it? Um, I'm going to be quick today so you guys can play golf or go fishing. Um, what was the most critical story of him? Oh, the court packing. Yeah. Were the most critical series. Uh, but I'll tell you one interesting story you reminded me. He went to visit one of his top aides. I think it was Harry Hopkins was uh, sick and was at Walter Reed Hospital. And Life magazine took a picture of his being wheeled from his car to the hospital. The shot was, it had to have been 100 feet. There was nothing, I mean, you could see, I suppose, he was sitting, uh, but it wasn't a very good picture. The press office, and they, he had one hell of a tough press secretary, banned all journalists from any military or naval property when the president was there. So there was a, you know, we think that the Trump administration sometimes is vindictive. The Roosevelt administration was pretty tough as well to enforce that. Uh, let's go to JFK. There, there's a famous YouTube video now of a reporter asking if he was still as avid of a newspaper man or magazine reader as he used to be. And they, the reporter says, you know, during the campaign, there wasn't a magazine that was safe around you. JFK right. says that the press is invaluable, even though it is not fun to read things that are not agreeable. He says in this video that um, it is an invaluable arm of the presidency as a check of what's going on in an administration. It sounds like he means it helps me know what's going on with this large federal bureaucracy that has now grown and that he would now be in charge of. Um, he says that Khrushchev's totalitarian system might have advantages because he can move in secret, but is actually at a terrific disadvantage, as JFK says, to not have the abrasive quality of uh, of the press. So. Um, he really just, knew how to. He really knew how to pour it on, didn't he? Yeah, right. Exactly. But remember, um, at the same time, he's he's furious at the press at several points. He's furious at them for a for threatening to reveal the Bay of Pigs invasion before it took place, and then when the invasion failed, he's furious that they didn't write a story saying how bad the CIA plan was. That after all, he said he inherited from Eisenhower. He cracked down on reporting of the Cuban Missile Crisis and then helped write the definitive history of it, in which he insisted that uh, a reporter to whom he'd given an exclusive make sure he said that Adlai Stevenson, his own 
UN uh, ambassador, was willing to appease the Russians while he wasn't. So he was, you know, look, he talked a great game. And I was a kid <laughs> when he was doing these news conferences. But I want to, just to go back, Evan, to one thing you noted um, that I called the book The Presidents Versus the Press. So I got that. I was going to call it The Presidents and the Press. But I was reading, uh, doing my Kennedy research. And at the Kennedy Library, I came across the transcript of a speech he gave in 1961 to the American Publishers Association at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. And he said to them, I was going to call my speech the president versus the press, because that's how you guys sometimes behave. There is, if I had to choose between freedom of the press and national security, I would choose national security. And you guys have to do that too. But I will give you the benefit of the doubt, and I will call it the president and the press. I mean, give me a break. Um, I use the president's versus the He was a master, a master of press conference, a televised news conference. Talk about the right man at the right time, right time, uh, moment. Yeah, and those press conferences are actually very funny, the way he answers different questions. If you watch, pull them up on YouTube sometime. Of course they're, you have, they're but, great. but they're and, so funny. And one of the reporters who gets to, he turns to every time he thinks there's a lull, is a woman named May yes. Craig. She was a really tough pioneer woman in the Roosevelt era press corps, who was teased mercilessly by FDR. And then this poor woman who was elderly, you know, in her 70s, with a flower pot hat is, I think she wore it so he'd see her in the audience of men. He always called on her. And all he had to do was look at her and people would laugh. And um, he liked her though. Um, and, he, and you know, he, he, he took photographs with her alone, but she became a kind of a national icon. You're too young for this. There was a woman named Mrs. Miller who used to sit in the audience of the Jack Parr show and then the Merv Griffin show. And whenever he went into the audience, he would interview this dotty old woman with a flower pot hat named Mrs. Miller. No one knew who she was, but she was always there. And May Craig was the Mrs. Miller of the, of the press conferences. Um, now that's an obscure reference, which I'm sort of sorry I no, no, it, it's terrific. Uh, when LBJ comes in, the phrase credibility gap becomes yeah. part of our vernacular. And it starts over the size, as you report in the book, over the federal budget, but soon grows giant because of the difference between what was happening in Vietnam and what, well, what was happening in Vietnam and what LBJ wanted to say was happening in Vietnam, yeah. two different exactly. things. My, my question about LBJ is, how did his hand-to-hand -hand combat style that served him so well when it came to managing Congress and convincing Congress to support him, not serve him well when it came to managing the press. Johnson is one of those presidents who came to power, Nixon was another, convinced that the press was against him um, and that he couldn't win. Uh, with Johnson, it was the conviction that the Eastern establishment loved Kennedy and was furious that he had wound up in power after Kennedy's death, and they would never cut him a break, that he could never compete uh, in terms of being telegenic. Um, he could never do press conferences in that same State Department auditorium that Kennedy had used. He would just look bad. So he was constantly trying to invent ways. And his way, as you, as you pointed out, was hand-to-hand -hand combat. So he would stare silently at reporters. He would call the editors and complain. I mean, Kennedy did too, but the Editors were kind of thrilled to hear from him. They weren't. But he would bring, 
he would bring them into his bedroom. I mean, Johnson would bring these guys into really gross places to talk to them. Yeah, there was one reporter who wanted it. He was essentially lonely and and attention-seeking. If that sounds familiar, it's not, not, you know, it's always been there. He was getting a massage from one guy one day uh, on a table in his bedroom you know, completely nude. And the reporter comes in and says, oh my God. He says, no, no, come in. I want to finish and give you this story. The reporter is like staring in his steno pad, trying not to look. And then he says, thank you, Mr. President. This is just what I need to finish the story. And Johnson says, wait, wait. And he gets, jumps off the massage table and goes to his closet and bends over right in front of him to get a photograph. And he says, I wanted to give you this photograph of me. And the guy is like, can you use it to cover yourself? He doesn't say that. And then Johnson says, wouldn't you like me to sign it? <laughs> Guys, I, yes, I, sign I was it. hoping you weren't going to tell that story, but what the heck? Oh, Why not? I, I cleaned it up. <laughs> no, no, you did. No, it was, it was good. Um, uh, so, he, was so, a physical, he was a physical being, and he pushed his physical presence on people, whether he was in their faces with his own face or with something else. <laughs> reporters that swimming nude in the White House pool, it was an intimidating factor. So why and does that- He wrote about it, said he was pretty gross in natural state. So it was, you know, not exactly showing off. So why does that not serve him well when it comes to managing the press and managing the issue of, of, of Vietnam and the war and all that? Well, the facts are against him. I think he actually didn't do a terrible job with the press. He had very good press secretaries. Uh, he had Pierre Salinger for a while, then he bullied uh, a George Reedy, who was pretty, actually pretty good. And he had Bill, the great Bill Moyers, who's a, actually a friend of mine of 40 years standing. Um, so he had some pretty good professionals. But, you know, he micromanaged, he, he made unreasonable demands, he yelled at his staff, he kept, uh, Joe Califano was one of his young aides, he kept saying, you know, get a trend, I want you to hold a transistor radio to your ear 24 hours a day. And Califano just sort of laughed at him. Um, he's a member of my board of advisors now at Roosevelt Pass. He told me some great stories. Yeah, and he was pretty fresh to Johnson, which Johnson actually liked. I, let me say one thing about LBJ. As, you know, this was a great domestic president who, whose legacy will be ever, will be always um, placed in the context of his the enormous casualties and failures of the Vietnam um, escalations. Remember though, unlike George W. Bush, Lyndon Johnson never put restrictions on the coverage of the war. Um, Walter Cronkite, whose documentary from Vietnam in which he said it's time to start an honorable peace, uh, it's, it's time to consider and withdrawal an honorable peace. LBJ watched that and said, and realized how important it was for the most respected newsman in America to say that. He said, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. And indeed he didn't seek a, a, a full term after that report. Yet you have to give him credit for allowing um, complete freedom of the press, World War II style during Vietnam. Um, and I, I give him credit for that in the book as well. He must have been impossible to work for, impossible to interview, but he believed in the open press too. How does the press change with the advent of the 1980s? CNN goes on the air, C-SPAN goes on the air, the media starts to fragment. Ronald Reagan is, you say, riding this wave that suddenly rewards the showman's background. Um, how did his staff 
use the new media to cultivate Ronald Reagan's image? Well, they use the new and the old media. With the old media, they he was kept on message, you know, strictly, stringently on message. Um, and as you point out, he was a remarkable uh, uh, performer as president. And he was pretty frank about it. He said, you know, um, I know people say I'm the first actor to be president, but how could you not be an actor and be president? He was on stage. He, when he, you know how um, when President Trump walks to his helicopter, he is unable to resist the rope line of reporters. He strolls over and squabbles with them and fights with them in this scrum. Um, Reagan would, would cup his ear as if he couldn't hear their questions or point to his watch as if to say in pantomime, um, I have no time, I'm sorry. So he was basically doing silent movies for the reporters. And it was endearing. Look, it wouldn't have worked if he wasn't so uh, deft at it. But he also used the week, he had introduced the weekly radio address, um, he, it, he, he, the local press. And um, by the way, he was an, an enormous fan of C-SPAN. I found this out from my friend Brian Lamb, who founded the network. He insisted that the White House get C-SPAN. There was no cable then. They had to get satellite connectivity. And he would watch, he would go up to the family quarters and watch C-SPAN, maybe not as often as Trump watches Fox or whatever he's watching now, like Fox. But he was almost addicted to it. And members of Congress, whose debates were covered gavel to gavel on C-SPAN, learned this and they began introducing policy ideas in 30-second addresses on C-SPAN, figuring that was the length of the president's real attention span. And the president would immediately adopt these ideas or discuss these ideas. So he, he, he used the new media and the new media in a way used him as well. Uh, my question about Bill Clinton is he comes into office as this partisan press is sort of retaking hold. And as, um, I mean, you know, you've got conservative websites out there, you've got talk radio that's really becoming a force, especially in conservative politics. Um, it felt a lot like reading about the 1860s and the, and the 1850s as this partisan press starts to take hold. Why did sort of Bill Clinton sort of miss this threat of the conservative press um, as his administration starts to, you know, take on water because of the various scandals that hit? Well, um, it's a very good question. And he should have because his campaign was um, nearly sunk <clears throat> by reports over his, um, you know, his draft status, <clears throat> um, his pot use, whatever. Travelgate, uh, Vince Foster. Well, that's when he becomes president. Yeah. You know, he, um, he did not, he has a, a great security about himself and he's always been convinced in his whole life that his charm and his good works will overcome questions about truth and even raw politics. And he underestimated the anger that the press had, I think, about not being able to overturn his campaign before the Democratic Convention. When, when he overcame the draft thing, the uh, marijuana thing, and the infidelity charges with his famous 60 Minutes um, interview with Steve Croft on Super Bowl Sunday, I might add, in 1990, I guess it was 92, early in, in the campaign season. I think the press developed 
an anger toward him and they were determined to find a ways to bring him down. He didn't help himself, of course. But to this day, and he is the only president I interviewed for, for the book, um, he, he acknowledges some mistakes that he made in dealing with the press, like locking the door between the basement press room and the press secretary's office. That wasn't a smart move, and he admits that. I have a feeling that might have been Mrs. Clinton's idea, but no one will ever, will ever say for sure. And maybe focusing on don't ask, don't tell as his first major policy initiative, maybe that wasn't very smart. But he is still roaring about Travelgate, um, about um, um, Whitewater, but particularly about Vince Foster. Um, people have to know how that pained the Clintons. He was a real friend of theirs, of long standing, who was obviously deeply troubled. And the idea that they were accused of being complicit in his death or something after the fact, that really shook them and made them, frankly, hostile to the press for the rest of his term. Uh, Barack Obama uh, is the first president to use Twitter. Um, and that was done, and as you well know, much to the fury of conservative media and opposition. He took a lot of heat. There was a, a nickname, the Tweeter in Chief, and people really hit him for that. Um, but you also not said- Not just the conservatives. Not just the conservatives. I've spoken to, I spoke to a lot of progressive journalists who are, who really believe that he was not transparent and not available to them, um, referring them to the White House website, Vis talking to the press only on birthdays, uh, things like that, uh, um, until Trump. You, you know, I think some of these journalists maybe regret what they said, but they thought that uh, Obama was the least successful president of the modern era. And one of the things that you write about in the book is I'm that- I'm sorry, Obama. Did I say Trump? I'm sorry. Uh, no, yeah. You're, uh, one of the things that, you, that, that certainly comes up with Barack Obama is um, the lack of responding to public information requests. And as you say, he went, used Twitter to go around the press and basically communicate with the right. public that way. Right. In fact, I think one of his big mistakes was answering it, or his office answered a journalist's question by saying, just check the White House website. Uh, journalists do not like to be referred to a website for, for information. And also, uh, many presidents have gone after leaks. Trump was not the first to go crazy and call in an Anthony Scaramucci to plug leaks. Um, um, Reagan was furious about leaks. Bush one was furious about leaks. Um, but Obama actually wiretapped a New York Times reporter's phone and the phones of his family in an effort to find out if he was the source of leaks that he thought threatened national security. So he was also a, an enforcer. And of course, the press doesn't like that either. Well, we've made it all the way to number 45. Donald Trump, fake news, the enemy of the people, the worst people on earth. Um, I personally have been booed at a Make America a Great Again rally. I have seen people nearly punch out a CNN reporter. Um, you say in the book, love Donald Trump or loathe Donald Trump. He became one of the most effective communicators in White House history. But you also say that he didn't wage battles over the truth he waged war over the war itself. Um, yeah. What will be the impact of Donald Trump's war versus the media? Well, I think, you know, it's, 
if so many people are convinced that he won the uh, 2020 election, and if that distortion, and this, I'm not being political, I've you know, lived through a lot of elections, I've studied all of them. Um, if people actually believe that massive fraud uh, took away the vote from Donald Trump, then we're living in an era in which objective truth has lost its meaning. And I think the, the, the challenge will be to establish something like a national consensus on what's real and what's not real. I think the damage that he's done is, is serious and deep. I'm not talking politics, I'm not talking issues, I'm talking about the war on objective truth. And just, you know, I hate to say look at the polls because the polls were wrong in the election campaign, but if the polls are right now that 50 or 60% of Republicans think that Trump won and that the vote has been stolen, then we're in a very bad situation as a democracy. And I is, think the threat is not just about the press, it's about democracy, is on democracy itself. Is the press still strong enough to confront a president? We have a, another problem now, and that is that we're, we have a 21st century presidency with all of the uh, adroitness with the high-tech media and all of the ability to say uh, A is true when B is objectively true and convince large numbers of people. But we also have a fractured um, media system where conservatives watch one, one ecosystem of news and liberals watch and whatever, moderates watch another ecosystem of news. And so we have a high-tech uh, world, but we're back to the 1850s in terms of journalism, where you only read what you believe is telling you the truth when it isn't. Now, I think, you know, we survived it in the 1850s, even though it took a civil war. We survived it in most of the 19th century. Uh, somehow we reached consensus. Um, despite the fact that we're reading partisan or, or consuming partisan media. Um, I, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe it's for Fox and MSNBC to label themselves as official organs of the Republican and Democratic parties, respectively, so that everybody has no, no further questions about the fact that the news is that they report is colored by their political and beliefs. Based on what you know about Joe Biden, how do you expect his treatment of the press to be? I expect it to be more like the Obama era. He's, he's already not making himself available often. He doesn't have the swagger that Donald Trump has. I mean, he'll go out and do an hour and say nothing except a lot of insults. Biden doesn't do that. And the press is already complaining. Um, he, he's, he's not only is he not president or begun his, uh, or, or had his honeymoon period, he's, he's still the president-elect and they're saying he's unavailable. So I think with Biden, it's gonna be complaints about accessibility, for sure. And the press conference is not his strongest format. He's not gonna do a lot of them. What does it say about, um, well, let me ask it this way. When, what would you say to people as we continue to watch this battle of presidents versus the press, what is the red flag that we should all be looking for to see when a president is going too far in how they handle the press based on all of your studies? Well, closing off information and creating state-run media 
which presidents have threatened. Um, Adams threatened to create state-run media. Wilson did create a state-run media in World War I. Um, that's a red flag. Throwing people out of the press corps, as the Trump administration did once with Jim Acosta um, of CNN, that's a red flag. So as long as there's access and the ability to report and the freedom to report, then I think we're fighting on fair terrain. And just one hopes um, and add in the need for more education, civics education in the schools, which is desperately needed so people learn about the system. I mean, the, the senator-elect from Alabama was asked what the three branches, branches, branches of government are. And he said the House, the Senate, and what was his third? It wasn't, I mean, it was so ridiculous. Yeah. House, the Senate, and the White House. That's what he said. Yeah, well. So we've got tr trouble. Hmm. Uh, and if people don't get the, it's what the system is and the guarantees of the system and the restraints of the system, then um, I worry about objective truth. I think if Biden, Biden's historic role will be calming the waters. Um, bringing down the temperature and every other uh, cliche I can think of, um, just making the debate a little more about issues and a little less about wild theories and personality-driven politics. I hope. I hope. Am, am I allowed to ask what you're studying next? What you expect the next project to be, or you're not there oh, yet? Sure. Um, no, I. In fact, I had really started research for the book I'm doing next. And then I decided I have to do something on, I originally called it fake news, a history, but it got a little broader than that. So I, the book I was originally contracted to do now, um, and I thought would be timely in a presidential election year, is Lincoln and immigration. Because there was a lot of pressure on the system in the 1850s and 60s with um, the flow of people from Ireland and Germany and uh, other places. And um, it's always good to see how Lincoln handled this. Can we have you on to talk about that? If I'm still here, I, I will. That's what Lincoln used to say. If alive, I will vote Republican on November 3rd. That's what he said for his own. It's a deal. Harold Holzer, author of The Presidents Versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, From the Founding Fathers to Fake News. Thanks so much for joining us. Certainly check out that book and his website, haroldholzer.com. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History, and today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.